And we're back. Thank you guys for coming. Um, as I'm sure a lot of you can probably tell, I am sick. My voice most likely sounds very strange right now. Sounds much different than usual, probably. But I don't have these pre-recorded, so we're doing it sick. Uh, but it's fine. I could have skipped a day if I wanted to. It wouldn't have been a big deal. I could have skipped a day on my main channel. It wouldn't be a big deal, but... I don't want to skip a day. I like doing these. So um, so here we are. Sick or not, I'm doing it because I enjoy doing them. So we are on chapter 7 of the Pure Worship of Jehovah book. Uh, the very beginning says, The nations will have to know that I am Jehovah. Now th I believe that this Ezekiel 25, 17... Um, this is one of those verses like Psalms 83:18 where Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse as proof that God's name is Jehovah because it's in a lot of other Bibles too, not just Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. I think there are like two or three spots in most versions of the King James Bible where it says the name Jehovah incorrectly because that name does not belong in the Bible because it's incorrect. But anyways, uh, okay, so that's the title of this chapter. The nations will have to know that I am Jehovah. And here's the focus. What we learn from Israel's interaction with the nations that defamed Jehovah's name. It's kind of wordy. Okay, so this is uh, paragraph one. For hundreds of years, Israel had been like a lone sheep amid a pack of wolves. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and Edomites menaced Israel on its eastern border. The uh, the Philistines, constant enemies of Israel, maintained a foothold to the west. To the north lay the city of Tyre, the rich and powerful hub of a vast trading empire. To the south sprawled the ancient nation of Egypt, ruled by its god-king Pharaoh. I just want to make quick note of something. Um, my dad actually lived in the Middle East for a long time. I think from the age of like... 18 to 30 or something like that. I don't even remember, but he was there for a long time. It was long before he had me, um, or any of his kids, come to think of it. But anyway, um, he lived in the Middle East. He lived in Beirut, Lebanon for a while, and he lived in Tyre. But he actually pronounced it Tyr. Uh, that may be the correct pronunciation, Tyr. I don't know. That's just how I've always said it, Tyre. So I'm going to continue saying it that way. Um, until I get, you know, definitive proof on it. But anyway, um, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting that he lived there. Okay, so let's continue on to paragraph two. It says, When the Israelites relied on Jehovah, he protected them from their enemies. Time and time again, though, his people and their kings allowed themselves to be corrupted by the nations that surrounded them. King Ahab is just one example of such a, uh, a weak-willed ruler. A contemporary king of Jehoshaphat of Judah, he ruled the ten tribe kingdom of Israel. He married a daughter of the Sid I'm sorry. He married a daughter of the Sidonian king, who controlled the prosperous city of Tyre. That woman, named Jezebel, fanatically promoted Baal worship in Israel and influenced her husband to contaminate pure worship on an unprecedented scale. I find it interesting they're talking about Jezebel here because one vivid memory from my childhood, if I have just one of Jehovah's Witnesses, 
is the picture of Jezebel in the Bible storybook. And her getting pushed out the window, I think, is what happened. Um, let me just look it up real quick, because it's, it's really funny. Uh, Bible storybook, Jezebel. Yes, these pictures, man. These pictures just bring back some memories. Seriously. Uh, haunting memories, but memories nonetheless. They are there. Just the face that they put on this woman is something. I don't know what. It is something, though. It is not nothing. I will say that. Anyways, uh, yeah. These Jezebel... I, I mean, th that book is so absurd, the Bible story book. But this story of Jezebel is really interesting. Okay. So that was paragraph two. Here's three. Jehovah had warned his people about the consequences of disloyalty to him. Now his patience had finally run out. In 609 BCE, the Babylonian army returned to the Promised Land for the third time. It had been almost ten years since their last invasion. This time, they would tear down the walls of Jerusalem and crush those who rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. As the siege began and Ezekiel's inspired prophecies were fulfilled in grim detail, the prophet turned his attention to the nations surrounding the Promised Land. Okay. So, again, this is kind of talking about 609, 608, 607 BCE. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses really leaning into this 607 uh, BCE thing, saying this is when Jerusalem fell. That is not true. We have irrefutable evidence that is not when Jerusalem fell. It was 587, 586, 587. That's when it was. And that just completely destroys their entire theology. So, they need it to be 607. They need that date to be 607 um, for their entire theology to work. Okay, so here's uh, paragraph 4. Jehovah revealed to Ezekiel that Judah's enemies would rejoice over the destruction of Jerusalem and harass the survivors. But the nations that slandered Jehovah's name and persecuted or corrupted his people would not escape the consequences of their actions. What practical lessons can we learn from Israel's interaction with those nations? And how do Ezekiel's prophecies regarding the nations give us hope today? Okay, so that was the first section. Uh, the next section, the next subheading is called Relatives Who Treated Israel with Utter Scorn, quote-unquote. Um, in the side here, it says, The nations that slandered Jehovah's name will not escape the, the, the consequences of their actions. You know, everybody's making this, this guy out to be just the greatest guy ever, Jehovah. Making him out to be all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, all uh, benevolent. And that's the one that kills me. They make him out to be benevolent. When the things that, that hit the actions they describe in the Bible are not benevolent. They are evil. Seriously. The things he does in the Bible are evil. How can they call him benevolent when they talk about some of this stuff? It just blows my mind. Okay. So like I said, that was the end of that section. Subheading's title is Relatives Who Treated Israel With Utter Scorn. This is paragraph five. Ammon, Moab, and Edom were, in a sense, blood relatives of Israel. Despite their family ties and shared history, those nations built up a long record of hostility toward God's people and treated them with utter scorn. 
that that was the end of five. Here's six. Five was kind of short. Consider the Ammonites. They descended from Abraham's nephew Lot through his younger sister, uh, through his younger daughter. Their language was so closely related to Hebrew that God's people would likely understand it. Because of his, because of this family bond, Jehovah told the Israelites not to initiate war against Ammon. Yet in the days of the judges, the Ammonites joined Moabite king Eglon in oppressing Israel. Later, when Saul was made king, the Ammonites attacked Israel. And in the days of King Jehoshaphat, they again joined forces with Moab to invade the Promised Land. So, I guess this is just kind of going through a lot of history. This is kind of trying to cover a lot of ground here. Um, so, the verses they quoted are Genesis 19.38, Judges 3.12-15, Deuteronomy 2.19... First uh, Samuel eleven one to four, and then Second Chronicles twenty one and two. They just they're I guess they're quoting a lot of verses. I'm not really like I'm not picking up on the thread they're laying down if they're trying to deliver a message here. Uh, not yet, anyways. It may come to me um, later on in the uh, in the chapter. Okay, so here's paragraph seven. The Moabites too were descendants of Lot, but through his older daughter. Oh, okay. So the, in the last paragraph, they said the Ammonites were descendants of Lot through his younger daughter. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, I may very well be, but didn't didn't Lot's daughters get him drunk and sleep with him to get pregnant? Isn't that what happened? Isn't... Uh, okay, so isn't the father of these daughter's children lot himself this is kind of creepy and weird this is getting really weird all of a sudden uh, so the ammonites are the de- descendants of lot and his younger daughter and the moabites are the descendants of lot with his older daughter this is getting really bizarre okay So it says, the Moabites too were descendants of Lot through his older daughter. Jehovah told the Israelites not to engage in war with Moab, but the Moabites did not return the kindness. Instead of helping their uh, cousins, who were escaping slavery in Egypt, they tried to prevent them from entering the promised land. Moabite king Balak hired uh, hired Balaam, to curse the Israelites, and Balaam taught Balak how to lure the Israelite men into committing immorality and idolatry. Okay. For centuries, the Moabites continued to oppress their relatives, right down to Ezekiel's day. I love the mindset that they have here. Um, I don't really know the situation very clearly, so I can't really speak to it, but this, this sentence right here sticks out to me. Balaam taught Balak how to lure the Israelite men into committing immorality and idolatry. How do you lure somebody into committing idolatry? Are you standing on a street corner, passing out crosses to people and saying, here, go worship this or something? I don't know. This is just bizarre. I don't know. Maybe they're right. Maybe they have a point here. I don't know. I don't know the situation. Maybe they did legitimately lure them into committing idolatry. I don't know. 
It's just a very strange way to word it at the very least. Okay, so there's a picture above it. Uh, that was on page 74. So page 73, there's a picture here. It says the nations surrounding Jerusalem, uh, 650 to 300 BCE. Now, like I said, I don't trust any timelines Jehovah's Witnesses are putting up in these in this book. Because I already know for a fact that some of their timelines are incorrect. So, take this with a grain of salt. But they have a, a, a depiction, I guess, of the Great Sea, of the Mediterranean Sea. And above it is Greece. To the right of it is, or just on the coast, is Sidon, Tyre, Samaria, Gaza, the Gaza Strip, if you guys know where that is. So, that's Israel. Then below that, we've got Philistia, and then Egypt, and then off the coast, but just out a little bit from Gaza, down, um, to the southeast of Gaza, we've got Edom, and then north of that's Moab, then above Moab is Ammon, and then above that's Babylon. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can already see this, but uh, that's for those of you who are uh, listening on the podcast on like iTunes or something. Okay, so on the on the left side they do have a timeline here. It starts at 6:30. It says timeline all years BCE. Like I said, I want to preface any review of timelines with this. They're completely full of it. So, take it with a grain of salt. It says 6:20 Babylon begins to dominate Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar makes Jerusalem's king a vassal. And then 617, Babylon takes first captives from Jerusalem. Rulers, mighty warriors, and craftsmen are taken to Babylon. Then we got 607. Now this is the date that they believe incorrectly that Babylon, uh, I'm sorry, that Jerusalem fell. It says 607, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. The city and her temple are burned. And then we've got after 607, which apparently... I, I take to mean anything after 607 is less important than anything leading up to it. After 607, Tyre, mainland. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Tyre for 13 years. He conquers mainland Tyre, but the island city remains. And then we've got 602, Ammon and Moab. And then it says Nebuchadnezzar invades Ammon and Moab. Uh, and then 588, Babylon defeats Egypt. In the 37th year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar invades Egypt. And then 332, Tyre, inland, inland, I'm sorry, oh my god. 332, Tyre, island city. The Greek army, commanded by Alexander the Great, destroys the island city of Tyre. And then 332 or earlier, Philistia, uh, Alexander conquers Gaza, a Philistine capital city. Interesting. I'm not really sure how all that relates quite yet, but we'll we'll keep reading. We'll see what happens. Okay, so that was paragraph seven that we hit last. All right, so let's hit eight. It says, The Edomites were descendants of Jacob's twin brother Esau. The bond with Israel was so close that Jehovah referred to the Edomites and the Israelites as brothers. Even so, the Edomites opposed Israel from the time of the Exodus to the destruction of Jerusalem in 607 BCE. Incorrect date, remember. At that time, the Edomites not only rejoiced at Israel's suffering, urging the Babylonians to desolate Jerusalem, but also blocked the escape of any fleeing Israelites and handed them over to the enemy. Interesting. Um, 
I almost never see Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, referenced. I don't remember the last time I saw this book referenced, but it says uh, at the very end of this paragraph, it's got Psalms 137.7 and Obadiah 11 and 14. I, I think there's only a single chapter. Like there, there, there aren't more than one chapters in Obadiah, as far as I can remember. I forgot it was even a Bible book until I saw OBAD period and then 11 and 14 next to it. Anyway, that's kind of interesting. Okay, so here's number nine. Jehovah called Israel's extended family to account for the way they treated his people. He said, I will give the, I will give dot, 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 ellipsis. That means they took something out. The Ammonites as a possession to the people of the East so that the Ammonites will not be remembered among the nations. He also said, I will execute judgment in Moab and they will have to know that I am Jehovah. Some five years after Jerusalem fell, those prophecies began to be fulfilled when the Babylonians conquered Ammon and Moab. Regarding Edom, Jehovah said that he would cut off from it both man and livestock, quote unquote, and he would make it, I'm sorry, and he would make it desolate. As foretold, Ammon, Moab, and Edom eventually ceased to exist. Okay, so... This is actually something, this is getting into territory that Bible scholars use to quote-unquote prove the Bible, this bit. Uh, they use things like, they say, for example, there are like four prophecies that have come true, and they view them as legitimate prophecies. But for one of those prophecies being, Israel was destroyed as the Bible foretold. And then it was rebuilt, as the Bible foretold. Um, I'm not going to get into it too much, why that's complete BS. But the bottom line is that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody wanted Israel to be restored, wanted to put the Israelites, quote-unquote, or the Jews, back in Israel, because they knew the Bible said that. They needed it to happen. Um, we knew about the prophecy long before it was fulfilled. And the powers that want, the powers that were capable of making it happen wanted it to happen also. So I don't view that as a legitimate prophecy, um, fulfillment. But aside from that, uh, another one is, another prophecy that was foretold is that Tyre, the city of Tyre, is going to be destroyed and never rebuilt. But it was actually rebuilt legitimately. I mean, it's we've got a city there now. There, It exists. We can go to Google Maps and look at it. There are people living there now. So that does not hold up, not even a little bit. Anyway, okay. So uh, let's take, I think that was number nine. Let's take a look at number 10 now. Actually, 10 is short, so let's read 10 and 11. However, not all members of those nations were hostile to God's people. Zelek, uh, okay, that's a weird name. Zelek the Ammonite and Ithma the Moabite, for example, are named among da uh, are named among King David's mighty warriors. And Ruth the Moab the Moabitess the Moabitess Ruth the Moabitess became a loyal worshiper of Jehovah. What lessons can we learn from Israel's dealings with those nations? This is 11. First, 
When Israel let down her guard, the corrupting false religious practices of her relatives crept in, such as worship of the Moabite Baal of Peor and the Ammonite god Molech. Something similar could happen to us. We may face pressure from unbelieving relatives who encourage us to drop our guard. For example, they may not understand why we do not celebrate Easter, exchange gifts at Christmas, or share in other popular customs that are associated with false religious beliefs. With the best of intentions, they may try to get us, even briefly, to compromise our standards. How vital it is, though, that we never succumb to such pressure. As the history of Israel shows, even one step off the cliff of compromise can lead to disaster. That's fascinating. Um, I, I was actually on a live stream with John Cedars recently, or Lloyd Evans. It was John Cedars' channel. We were talking about Christmas and Jehovah's Witnesses and things. And he was saying, um, he was saying that Jehovah's Witnesses... Oh, shoot, I can't remember what it was. Now. I was saying something that they decided was splitting hairs. Oh, what was it? Um, okay, I have just gone in search of this because I felt, I felt like it was important. So Jehovah's Witnesses just put out an Awake article recently about the pinata and how it's, um, it's not that big of a deal. It's okay. We need to look at things in context. It's okay for us to use the pinata, even though it has religious ties and, it, you know, even though all of this other stuff, it's okay if we want to use the pinata. Not a big deal. But the hypocrisy in that is hilarious and sad at the same time because they split the finest of hairs when it comes to Christmas or birthdays or anything else. They don't celebrate birthdays because, uh, you know, people died anytime the birthday, uh, anytime birthdays are mentioned in the Bible, somebody dies. They wanted the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter or something like that. Uh, they don't celebrate Christmas because it's got pagan origins. Just how pagan does it have to be before you stop celebrating it for that reason? Just how pagan? It, it, the hypocrisy in the decision to allow their people to use pinatas, but not to celebrate Christmas, is very, very interesting, at the very least. Very interesting. So, going back to the paragraph here, it said, Something similar could happen to us. We may face pressure from unbelieving relatives who encourage us to drop our guard. For example, they may not understand why we don't celebrate Easter, exchange gifts at Christmas, or share in other popular customs that are associated with false religious beliefs. With the best of intentions, they may try to get us, even briefly, to compromise our standards. How vital it is, though, that we never succumb to such pressure. As the history of Israel shows, even one step off the cliff of compromise can lead to disaster. They aren't consistent in what they believe. They aren't consistent. That's my issue. If they were reaching for consistency, it would be different. They're not. They're reaching for their own goals. They want Jehovah's Witnesses to be it separated from society in many ways. Uh, that is at least part of the reason why they don't celebrate Christmas. They want them to be separated from society. They want them to be different. It's the same with the cross and the stake, right? They say that Jesus didn't die on a, on a cross. He died on a stake. The word could mean either thing. 
it's ambiguous. We don't know what the what we don't know what Jesus died on based on the word that was used. But we do know that the cross was used most commonly as a torture slash uh, you know capital punishment device at that time. But Jehovah's Witnesses are using the word storos that was found in the Bible to claim that it was a stake and not a cross. When it just is not specific enough to make that claim, period. It just isn't. They're just reaching for their people to be different. That is, that is why you see a lack of consistency. They're not trying to separate their people from pagan practices and all that stuff. They're trying to separate them from society. That's the difference. Okay, so here's uh, paragraph number 12. We can learn another lesson from Israel's experiences with Ammon, Moab, and Edom. We may face severe opposition from unbelieving family members. Jesus warned that at times the message we preach would cause division with a, with a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Jehovah instructed the Israelites not to start a quarrel with their relatives, and we do not seek confrontation with our non-believing family members, but we should not be surprised when opposition comes. This is really fascinating to see the gears turning in their heads. And like I said, this book isn't exactly hidden from the public. Like they don't try to keep it out of the hands of the public, but they don't try to put it in their hands either. And even if the even if the public had access to this book, most of the time they probably wouldn't really understand it unless they had a good grip on Jehovah's Witnesses terminology and phrases and ideas, you know, and philosophies and things. Um, so that's another added layer of protection. I mean, what regular old person is ever going to reach page 75 in this book and see the things that they're saying here? You know, it says, Jesus warned at times the message we preach would cause division with man against his father, daughter against her mother. Jehovah instructed the Israelites not to start a quarrel with their relatives, and we don't seek confrontation with our non-believing family members, but we should not be surprised when opposition comes. Just gets more and more interesting. Okay, so that was 12. Here's 13. Even if our relatives do not directly oppose our worship of Jehovah, we, we must not let them have more influence over us than Jehovah does. Why not? Because Jehovah deserves first place in our heart. Read Matthew 10:37. Let's give this a read. This is getting really interesting. Okay. So this is Matthew 10:37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean it's right there in black and white. That's what the Bible says. And Jehovah's Witnesses are using it. I mean, this is my view on it, on the Bible, okay? It's a big book. It's got all kinds of things to say on all kinds of different subjects. If you want to believe something, you can make the Bible say it, pretty much. It's got contradicting opinions about just about everything. So what do you do when you find something in black and white here like this? I mean, the, the Westboro Baptist Church, the things they're saying about 
gay people, you know, hating fags and all that other stuff. God hates fags and all that. Well, the Bible does say you're supposed to kill gay people. That's what it says. How do you sidestep that? How do you say, no, the Bible doesn't say that a good Christian should love. It's hard to justify that away. It's possible. It only says it in six verses, I believe. I think it's six. And almost all of them are Old Testament. I think there's one in the New Testament. It's a passing message or a passing mention about prostitutes or something like that. Uh, and Jesus doesn't say a word about it. So it is possible to take the side of the Bible doesn't, you know, outright hate gay people or whatever. But it is in black and white. It's in black and white. It says it in the Bible. And it says it in the Bible here for Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, for support of their position. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's black and white. That's what it says. It's hard to justify that away. Honestly, I say we just throw the whole damn thing out. Just, we have our own set of morals. We know what's right and wrong. I believe that everybody in this, everybody watching this right now probably realizes and accepts that it's wrong to mistreat family members and abandon them when they're young because they stopped believing the same way that you did. I believe everybody in this, in this Discord server, or most people at the very least, realize how crooked and divisive Jehovah's Witnesses are and how harmful they are to society and to people. But it says it right here in the Bible. I mean, some of their positions are supported. So, you're going if you're a Christian, you're going to have to square that somehow. I don't know how. But um I do appreciate you guys being here and 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 supporting my fight against extremism. It's just going to be a fight to to square that on your own. Because the Bible has extremist things in it. Let's continue on. So that was 13. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're halfway through 13. It said, read Matthew 10, 37. And that was the bit about uh, loving God more than your family members. Okay. So now it says, in addition, if we remain loyal to Jehovah, some of our relatives might prove to be like Zelech, Ithma, and Ruth, and join us in pure worship. So it's saying, even if even if the, your relatives don't directly oppose you being a Jehovah's Witness, you can't let them influence you in any way because Jehovah deserves first place in our hearts. If we remain loyal to Jehovah, some of our relatives might, might join us in pure worship. That's what they're saying. Then they too will have the pleasure of serving the only true God and enjoying his love and protection. Oof, God, this just, this is cringy. This is some cringy shit right here. Okay, so that was 13. Uh, that's the end of the subheading. Here's the next subheading. It says, Jehovah's enemies received furious punishments. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think that's actually where I'm going to end it because uh, that's, that is halfway through the paragraph. I'm sorry, that's halfway through the chapter. Damn it, I'm still mixing those things up. 
<laughs> We're on page 76 now, and I'm still mixing up paragraphs and chapters. It's killing me. Okay, well, yeah, I appreciate you guys coming and giving this a listen, and I will talk to you guys next week.